Welcome everybody to tonight's Wireside Chat. I'm Paul Whitcover, the uh, Associate Dean of the Online MFA. And we are here with um, my co-host, Melissa Hart, who is unfortunately incommunicado today <laughs> due to a bad case of laryngitis. And, um, and our special guest tonight, uh, Tom Deddy. Uh, and I'm going to do a brief introduction of, of Tom here. So bear with me, please. Tom Deddy's 2016 debut novel, Haven, won the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a First Novel. He has since published several novels and novellas inspired by his love of horror, including most recently the novel Eternal Darkness, which earned comparisons to Stephen King. Tom was born and raised in Massachusetts, not far from the historic town of Salem, which might explain his love of horror. He resides in Arizona, which I suppose has his own share of historical horrors, where he's working on his next novel and teaches in the BA creative writing program here at SNHU. And maybe even some of your students are here, Tom. It's possible. Thanks for having me, Paul. Yeah, I, I hope some of my students are here. That would be fun. So I'm going to just uh, address the elephant in the room immediately by asking you about your shirt. This is my Haunting of Hill House shirt. I'm a big Shirley Jackson fan, um, one of the classics. Uh, I first learned of her work through her short story, The Lottery, and then yep. began devouring everything else she's written. In, in the fiction realm, at least. I know she has some nonfiction books about raising her kids and things like that. I have not read those, but big fan of her work. Yeah, she also has a collection um, that contains some of her uh, thoughts about the writing process and writing horror and just writing fiction in general, which I found to be extremely useful. And I think I know where it is in my bookshelf. So give me one second. I'll see <laughs> if I can grab it. Do I actually know where it is? I saw it here the other day. Oh, gosh, where is it? Here it is. Shirley Jackson, come along with me. Oh, yeah. I have not I, read that one either. Highly recommend it. I think there might will, be some fiction in here, too, up. by the way. But, uh, yeah, yeah she's a wonderful a wonderful writer. Yeah, I'm, I'm always inspired to hear people's stories of, you know, how they got started and, and thoughts on where they get their ideas and all that stuff. I love that kind of work. Yep. Uh, and I am going to pose those same questions to you. Um, before I do, I want to let everyone know that um, if you have a question for Tom uh, or me or any anyone at all, just type it into the chat and we will see it there and we will surface it and we will answer it to the best of our ability. So, Tom, what about what about your journey as a writer, your journey to uh, become an instructor at SNHU? Tell, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about all that. Sure. So it, it, it's kind of funny in a sad way, I guess. <laughs> I've always, I, I knew when I was a kid I really wanted to be a writer. I grew up reading, stealing my brother's Hardy Boys books, and then, you know, I graduated. I, found this other series that was very similar when I was a kid called Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators. Oh, I loved Alfred Hitchcock and the I Three still have all my original hardcovers. <laughs> um, and I always loved the ones that kind of 
bent towards the supernatural, even though at the end it turned out it wasn't anything supernatural. Yeah, uh, Scooby-Doo was very much, I think, influenced yes. by Alfred Hitchcock and the three investigators. Yep, Scooby-Doo was another one of my childhood favorites. And then, so when I was about 13, I was out at the local Woolworths, if anybody remembers Woolworth, that used to be like a little department store kind of before they had big box stores like they do now. And they had those little black spinny racks with all the paperbacks on them. And I'm looking for a new book and I find this cool book. I wish I had it with me. It was an all black cover with just one drop of red on it. And oh, of wow. course it was the original Salem's Lot paperback by Stephen King. And I took that home and devoured it. And I just, that was it. I was horror that was guy. it. I was a horror guy for life. <laughs> So so you were bitten by Stephen King, as it were. Yeah, very well done. Very well uh-huh. done. <laughs> so it, coincidentally, not long after that, in whatever whatever year that was in school, we had to write, uh, you know, creative writing, a short story. And I wrote a vampire story, of course. And I'll never forget my English teacher writing on top of the, the paper when she handed it back. You know, this is great. We should put it in Boojum Rock. Boojum Rock was our high school like literary magazine. Uh, and a little, course, little nod to Lewis Carroll there. I don't know where the name came from, if I'm being honest. I, I uh, never bothered to look it up either. Is that what that's from? <laughs> well, the Boojum is from The Hunting of the Snark, Lewis Carroll poem. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, of course, me being this, you know, introverted, nerdy teenager said i i can't put it there everybody will read it like i don't want that (laughs) i'm already like on the bottom of the food chain here i don't need to be weirder (laughs) so i just you know i never followed up and then i ended up going to college and pursuing a whole um you know high-tech career which i've endured my whole career and (laughs) while writing is always what i wanted to do Uh, I'd go back to it every once in a while and then like life would get in the way. And there was a point, I don't know if you guys remember um, Writer's Digest magazine. I'm not sure if it's even a mag, if magazines exist anymore, but um, they had a mail order back when there was no Internet. This was legit snail mail writing class. And I signed up for it and I started taking this class with Michael Garrett, who's a pretty well-known editor or was in the in the horror genre he edited a bunch of books called the hot-blooded series um and i started this this journey on the mail order you know novel writing course and it's where i started writing haven and that was back in like 1995 or so and i would i would get into it for a while and then you know i I had two daughters and i had two jobs and i had you know i'd put it away for years and i'd get the bug again and take it out and you know write a few more chapters and then whatever would happen so haven actually took me about 15 years to write i finished it in about 2010 and i said if if i'm gonna do this you know i'm gonna really give it a shot this time so i finished the book and I had been, my buddy and I had been blogging about the Red Sox back when blogs were cool. So back in 2004, we blogged the entire Red Sox season. 
and we had a pretty good following. Like blogs were, like I said, blogs were still kind of cool back then. And, and a lot of people followed them it was before there was like really Facebook or anything else. So people would find their interests and find the blogs they liked about them and kind of latch on to them. So we had a pretty big following. So at the end of the 2004 season, when the Red Sox won the World Series, my buddy and I said, we have a book here in, you know, game by game chapter form. Let's see if we can get it published. So we did. And at the ah. same time, this guy named Stephen King and Stuart O'Nan did the same thing in their book, oh. Faithful. <laughs> oh, it gosh. kind of overshadowed us anyway. Um, but the cool thing was. Stuart Ornan's publicist reached out to us because we had such a big following and said, can you interview Stuart for the Faithful book? And we said, sure. And so I, I got him on the phone and we we interviewed and I kind of stayed in touch with him because I was a big fan of his fiction work. He he used to write in the, I guess, horror adjacent genre. He, he had um, Songs of the Missing and... I think it was called The Night Road, uh, some some sort of ghost story type, horror type thing. So I, I kind of like stayed in touch with them and we just chatted via email occasionally talking about baseball and books and stuff. And finally, when Haven was done, I screwed up all my courage and said, listen, Stuart, I've been writing this book for like 15 years. How about you read it? <laughs> so I sent him a physical copy of the manuscript and Haven's a big book. So Haven's a 500 page. Oh yeah. Wow. So I sent him this, you know, printed out manuscript. Not only did he read it, he basically line edited the entire thing for me and gave me a blurb for it. Fantastic. I I, I was blown away. And coincidentally at the same, right about the same time, this, I don't know if you're familiar with Cemetery Dance Magazine. Sure. And they also do a lot of um, limited edition hardcover books by Stephen King and other. It, it's basically a horror boutique almost, I guess. But it's a little bigger than that. They had an open call, which they never have. And I said, I'm going to throw Haven to, at them and, you know, see what happened. And I, I had Stuart's blurb. And to this day, I believe it's his blurb that... <coughs> is why it caught Cemetery Dance's eye, because they had worked with Stuart before. So Richard Chismar reached out and said, hey, I, I had sent like the first three chapters. He said, I want to read the whole thing. And here I am, like, kind of starry eyed and fanboying about Cemetery Dance reading my book. And then a couple of years later, they put it out as a uh, limited edition hardcover and ebook, and um, it went on to win the Bram Stoker Award, which is still surreal to me. I still yeah. can't believe any of it happened. Um, and that was it. Like I said, that's it. This is what I'm going to do. I went back to SNHU and got my master's in English and creative writing, and have been writing pretty much nonstop. Well, I did not ever know since. that. That's really oh, interesting. Yeah. You're you're a, an alum of our program. I am. Well, yes, that's sir. fantastic. That is awesome. So, I mean, that must have been, I mean, you mentioned that it was like a surreal experience, but I can only imagine like your first novel comes out through kind of a unlikely chain of events. And then on top of it all, you win probably the most prestigious award in the horror community. Yeah, I, I it, it, it 
the the event that year they changed the event for where they have their awards banquet every year that year it was on the queen mary in long beach california which is was an amazing venue for the event and (laughs) since i was on the ballot i flew my two adult daughters out i wanted them with me just in case never expecting to win and uh i i bumped into somebody i can't remember who it was and they're like do you have your speech ready for tonight and i'm like no like why would i and they're like well there's only five names on the list like you should probably have a speech just in case like they weren't telling me i won it wasn't somebody that was in the know or anything they're just like you don't want to get up there and not know what you're gonna say (laughs) so i'm like that's probably a good idea so i went and wrote a speech and uh i'll never forget just sitting there as they're going through all the awards and just waiting and waiting and just feeling sick to my stomach and because i like even though i didn't expect it i knew i was going to be really disappointed (laughs) right um and they called my name and i got up and my oldest daughter like latched on to me (laughs) because she knew how much it meant to me and like i'm like five minutes later she's still hugging me i'm like they're waiting for me up there i gotta go up there (laughs) and it was just such an amazing amazing moment and it's it's something i'll never forget Oh, that sounds great. What a great moment for, for you and for your family. Yeah. I mean, that realization of a lifelong dream. Yeah. You know, it, it, the the funny part is like, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, this is it. Like I'm quitting my day job and, you know, here I go. I'm going to have agents and producers kicking my door down for books and movies. And it doesn't really work that way, but it was still cool. Right. So, so just, because I know a lot of the people that are listening here tonight, like, you know, students who are aspiring writers who would not mind achieving the kind of success that you have achieved. What happened between the time that you that you sold that first book and it wins this prestigious award and you have all of these kind of fantasies about, well, you know, it's going to be option for the movies and it'll be made into a movie or miniseries, whatever. What happens, you know, between the realization that, oh, gosh, that's not going to happen this time. And how do you go on from that? What comes after that? For me, I mean, for me, I just keep writing. Like once I got that bug and, and I knew I could do it to a point where people would actually read what I wrote, that was all I needed. Even if if Cemetery Dance didn't publish the book or. As long as somebody did, I guess, I would have felt validated if it didn't win the award. I, I think I just needed that boost of confidence to say, like, uh, other than somebody with the same last name as me telling me, like, this doesn't suck. You should keep doing this. So mm-hmm. um, so for me, it, you know, it would have been a nice thing to have the Netflix series or whatever. Um, but for me, I really do love the writing. I know it sounds like a cliche, but I do love telling stories. And I, I I did a little research on your on your work uh, before our uh, talk tonight, and I, I I see that you have been uh, publishing a lot of you've pu- published a few novels, including the one that I just mentioned, um, which which was interestingly enough not just compared to to Stephen King, but also compared to Salem's Lot in some in some respects. Um, but also I see that you've published a lot of novellas. Yes. Um, so I, w- I wanted to ask you a little bit about 
your publishing path and also what is it about novellas? That seems to be a, a, a good length for you for whatever reason. I'll tell you why, I, after some thought, I think the the reason it's a good length for me is because I'm terrible at writing short stories, and they always go way too long, so they become novellas. Uh, a lot of them, I didn't, I intended to start out writing a short story, and it just, I've I've never been good at short stories because when I grew up reading horror in the '80s, like late '70s and '80s. Every book was 500 to 1,000 pages. They were these that, massive doorstops that had this yeah. amazing cast of characters and, a, a, you know, a bunch of different subplots and all the backstory of all the ca- And I just love that. I love all the detail of setting and character. And that's what I find myself doing. Even when I'm trying to write a short story, I'm like, but the reader has to know this and about wow. this character. Or, and they just, they get longer than the typical short story and become novellas so it, it is for me it's it's um it's a media that i can get all the backstory and all the you know the the character development that i want without and, and still tell the story in sort of a short amount of time without it being 500 pages so it, it has worked out great. I've put out I've put out a bunch of novellas, and I do enjoy that length. Yeah, I think that's a length that many writers enjoy, but it's, it hasn't been until the advent of the internet and eBooks and and <laughs> um, self publishing that that it's become kind of a financially viable, um, you know, exactly. form. Because up until then, a magazine would would be loath to publish a novella because it would say, take up so much real estate unless it was by you know a name who is who would really help to sell the magazine i, I totally agree yeah i um, it, it, it's a good length but it, it's a it's a hard length to sell I, I i recently sold a novella to cemetery dance coincidentally it'd be my my second publication with them it's a weird western that's coming out next year that i'm really excited about they accepted it, but then they reached out to me and said, you know, we love the story and it's it's their novella series. They have a novella series there. Um, they said, but it's on the short side of the novel. I think it was only like 18,000 words. Mm-hmm. Like It's just it, like you said, it's, it's not really viable to put out a book of that length. They're like, can, do you have another story we can you know, like throw in with it? And I'm like, I would love to write another story in that same world with some crossover characters. So I wrote a second novella for them. So that's going to come out in, uh, I think, November of next year. So that'll be bundled as a single volume? It'll be a single volume with two essentially standalone novellas, but that, that are tied together by by setting and character. But they're, the stories themselves, you don't need one to read the other. But yeah. the you wet timing? It it. It is tentative. The first story was called A Blade to Silence the Screams. And I believe that will be um, I believe that will be the book's title. The other the the name of the fictional town is Sundown, Arizona. And the second story is called After Sundown. It continues mm, nice. on the first one. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've I've always been a big fan of 
American Southwest. Even before I moved there, I had been visiting there for 10 years or so. And it's it's just such a different world and such a different history than what we're used to on the East Coast that, that mm-hmm. it's just an endless, endless well for ideas out here. So um, I'd like to remind our listeners or viewers that if, if you have a question, please don't be shy and post it in the chat. I promise we'll do our best to answer. So let me ask you, we've talked about Shirley Jackson. We've talked about Stephen King. What other writers have influenced you? Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be from the horror genre. So specific to horror, again, when I when I used to go to the bookstores in the 80s, it, you know, they had these it was like the golden era of horror. They they had that was a big horror time. boom. They had a whole horror section, which you, it's hard to find now. But there was King, there was Dean Koontz, Robert McCammon, Peter Straub, um, Dan Simmons to a point uh, were my like kind of my staples in horror uh, for for more mainstream literature, I'm honestly a big fan of all the stuff that I probably didn't enjoy reading in high school, but going back and revisiting it yeah. as an adult is much more satisfying. To, to Kill a Mockingbird is my favorite book of all time, bar none. Um, of Mice and Men, Ethan Frome. There's just, there, there's a lot of just it was just such a different time frame that those were written in. I, I just... I can get lost in those worlds without technology and without, you know, all the stress of modern day. I just love those kind of stories. Um, Do you set your own stories in a kind of a pre, uh, you know, an era prior to our own? Most, well, I shouldn't say a lot of my stories are set in the time period that I grew up. So they're set in like 70s and 80s, which is, you know, pre cell phone and pre GPS. And it, it, Technology makes horror difficult unless you use the technology to your advantage somehow. You know, the horror relies on in a lot of a lot of the subtropes, it relies on isolation and it's impossible in the modern era to isolate anyone. I'm lost. I have a flashlight, I have a GPS, I have a phone, I have everything I need at my fingertips. There's like it's and then if you if you do that and you say, you know, you see the guy holding up the phone in all the horror movies, like, oh, I don't have signal. Well, isn't that convenient? You have signal everywhere in the world, but you don't have signal. And it just seems so cliche to try to try to make that work in the modern day. So the other reason I do it is because it, a lot of my work has a very much like a coming of age feel. There's a lot of you know, young adult protagonists and characters. And I don't know, I'm I'm very nostalgic about my own childhood. So I tend to write it in the time that I grew up because I know so much about what it was like to grow up then. I I, I can't imagine what it's like to grow up here and now in this world. So it's hard for me to write about it. Right. I noticed that you have written some YA horror. Yes. So what is the dividing line between YA horror and a horror novel that say, I mean, does any would any novel that has a protagonist who's say 17 years old, would that novel automatically be a YA novel, or or are there other markers that determine what what uh, a novel is going to be? 
If you find the real answer to that question, please let me know, because I don't know what it is. Um, I, okay. I, I do know between middle grade and YA, it's just sex. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> like you can. And, and I guess swear. You can't really swear in middle grade either. But between YA and adult, it's a very gray line. Like a lot of people think would say Haven would have qualified as a YA novel. I mean, there, there's there's obviously a lot of violence and there's a lot of swear words. But because of the age of the protagonist is what drives it to potentially fit in that YA category. Right. So. Um, I mean, it, that might be a little long, although maybe not true. at this point. But then look at Harry Potter, right? Well, that's that what I was just day? thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So my my official YA book is called The Clearing, and I wrote that specifically for my two daughters. When when my daughters were little, we used to read, you know, we'd read like The Babysitter's Club and all that type of stuff. And as soon as you get into the the more YA, not the, you know, the children's stuff, but into the YA stuff like Harry Potter. They loved, they both loved Harry Potter. And I'm like, that's great. But why, you know, it's always a male protagonist in those mm -hmm. books. So I wrote The Clearing with two, you know, 13 year old protagonists specifically because I wanted to write the book, the book that I wanted my daughters to read when they were that age that didn't exist. So that's, that's why awesome. <laughs> Uh, I guess that was Toni Morrison said, like, write the book that you that you want to read or that you think should be written. Nobody else can write it but you. Right. Um, so I'm going to get a couple of questions out of the chat. OK. Um, the, the first one here is what was the most challenging part of the SNHU creative writing program for you? Um, probably the I thought I think the most difficult class in that master's program was probably the advanced writing workshop. That was, that was some pretty intensive stuff. And, you know, it was the instructor I had was, was fairly critical. I mean, it was, it's just, it, it's hard for anybody to hear their work critiqued, I guess. And especially if it's somebody, um, so let, let me fast forward. Like today I'll send out my work to, um, you know, friends that are in the genre, other writers and things like that. And I feel like they kind of know where I'm trying to go to because they have like minds in terms of what they like to read. And when I was writing for the advanced writing workshop, um, I mean, it could it could have been a, a mystery specific person that was the instructor or or any other, you know, fiction category right so not everybody thinks of horror in the same light as they do other genres it's kind of like the redheaded stepchild thing in <laughs> as a subgenre in fiction sometimes so it, it it was hard for me to hear criticism and not be sure that that criticism was coming from someone who's read a lot of that type of stuff or <clears throat> or not so i i struggled a bit with that class but again it's Every piece of criticism, there's always something you can take away from it. it, whether it's, you know, meant to be constructive or whether it's mean spirited. There's always a nugget of truth in there that as a writer, you can take that and, and learn and grow from it. So I, I try to keep that attitude throughout. 
how, how do you how do you um, develop that attitude? Uh, it it's not easy, you know. It it bad reviews and bad criticisms they hurt, but you kind of get used to it, and you just kind of have to just. It's part of the business, right? Like you have to be able to, if you can't deal with that, then you're not, you know, Stephen King gets bad reviews. Everybody gets bad reviews. You're going to, and you know, it's actually kind of really edgy these days to kind of make fun of Stephen King's writing for some reason. I don't know. Um, but in, in a lot of forums, <laughs> like on social media, people are just like slamming him. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure he doesn't care about your little criticism sitting in his mansions and, and all that. But it, it does take time. I mean, the, the first few times it happens, it really it really leaves a wound and it leaves you questioning you know your ability to to write and whether or not you should continue it 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 can be really hard and and devastating and you just have to hopefully you have a good enough support system around you to you know help you shake it off because writing is it's just it's such a solitary thing you're sitting there after everyone else is in bed or whatever your your time of the day to write is and you're by yourself and it's very solitary and then when you finally have the courage to put your stuff out there and somebody throws it back in your face and tells you it sucks, it, it does hurt. I'm not going to lie. I mean, to, to all the students listening out there, getting that thick skin, I mean, it's you, you got to develop that scar tissue and just kind of learn to let it roll off you. And everybody, all the more um, established writers will say, don't read your reviews, but how can you not read your reviews? <laughs> like you have to go read your reviews. You want to know what people think of your work. And sometimes uh, I wished I hadn't, but um, yeah, it's, I, 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 I don't have a real, you know, earth shattering secret on how to develop that attitude, but you just have to have a good support system around you to, to help you keep going sometimes. Yeah. I know that, you know, back when I was, was, in writing workshops and kind of learning my craft and everything, there really was no uh, attention paid to that support system that you're talking about and and that some people in the chat are mentioning. You know, it was more like we're going to toughen you up, kid. You know, yeah. we're going to make sure that you get that you get you know a tough skin so you can deal with anything that's coming to you in the outside world is going to be a hundred times worse than what you experience in this workshop. So get over yourself. Right. And, you know, that that was a, an approach that I feel was not really all that beneficial uh, to anyone. So, yeah. I mean, I, I know in the MFA, um, we've tried to structure things in such a way that the workshops really are, you know, grounded in a philosophy of support and um, positivity. Um, and uh, I just I mentioned that only because I don't want anybody who's who's listening, you know, and thinking about, gee, maybe I'll go get my MA or my MFA and and hearing some of these stories and thinking like, oh, maybe not. No, you know, we were very welcoming oh, environment and we hope everybody comes in. Yeah, my comment was in no way a reflection of a, a bad experience with a teacher. It was my personal internal struggle with trying to write for that workshop it had nothing to do with the, the curriculum or the instructor at all i want to make sure that's clear that no that was lot, i didn't, and I didn't mean what, to imply that a lot of what writers struggle with is right there and nowhere else yeah that's right exactly the mind plays tricks you play tricks back as pv exactly. once said 
Um, so let me go it back into the chat here. Sure. What inspires you to create your next novel? I, you know, I see a lot of people posting or are talking about writer's block. And I don't know if it's because, you know, I was like a frustrated writer my whole life. I didn't publish a book till I was in my 50s. Um, I have no shortage of ideas. I can find inspiration and ideas just at everywhere I look, I, I wrote a story. Uh, one example I use, I was driving. This was back when I still lived in Massachusetts. I was driving home and it was one of those like late winter um, freezing rainstorm kind of things where it's like it, it's not really pretty snow. It's just like this slushy mess that makes the roads all filled with black ice I'm driving home from my day job and it's dark and miserable and I'm driving by this little strip mall and they must have been having some kind of grand opening or something like that because they had all these balloons at the entrance to the strip mall. But at the same time, there had been some type of accidents because of, of the road and there was an ambulance there and just the lights reflecting off the balloons was such a dichotomy to me that I'm like, it, something is supposed to be celebratory is now not and i came up with this story called the pink balloon which ended up being published in um god i can't remember which which anthology it was but um i i don't know i it, it that where do you get your ideas and inspiration i i think unfortunately is different for everyone but Another story that I just finished and, and uh, I'm still involved in a, a writing group with a bunch of my friends and I just had them critique it for me. Um, I was recently back in Massachusetts visiting and you know how when there's an accident or a death on the road, they usually have like sometimes they'll put a memorial with crosses and flowers and things. So I was staying in Ipswich, Mass with my in-laws and I passed by one of those, but it was a bicycle. And I think, I assume the kid probably got hit on his bike. Well, and I'm like, like a whole story just came into my head just by seeing that one thing. So yeah. I, I, I don't know how it works for other people, but I have maybe some really weird triggers that like I see something and it just triggers a what if type of story for me. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way it becomes kind of a habit almost that you can you know what what elements are going to trigger that kind of uh, reaction in you, right? So you can, when you see them, you're prepared to generate a story from them. Yeah, and and to be honest, I, I do a lot of things that kind of foster that as well. So I, I mentioned at the beginning, my, my weird background here is I'm in an RV right now. My wife and I, about two years ago, bought an RV and we kind of drive everywhere. And I drive specifically to places that have like, weird history or haunted <laughs> or abandoned um, asylums or prisons. And so I, I go to places that are definitely going to like help that, that trigger go off in my head. So. So it must be interesting when you, when you and your wife are planning your next vacation, you're probably like, well, honey, I've got, I've got a couple of interesting choices here. <laughs> what, what, where, I mean, is she on board with all of, all of your, uh, your, your journeys? She, she, I, to go back to the support system, she is my biggest supporter and, you know, she'll, she does all these crazy things with me. We spent the night in, um, Waverly Hills Asylum in Kentucky. It's, it's an old, um, it was originally a, um, 
tuberculosis, not asylum, but hospital. And then when that was over, they converted it to an asylum. And it's just, it's this giant foreboding looking brick building. And it's just completely abandoned. There's no electricity. And this tour company just takes you in there and you walk around with flashlights and they tell you all the weird history of the things that happened there. We've been to the Stanley Hotel, which is where Stephen King stayed when he got the idea for The Shining, um, which is allegedly haunted as well. My my problem is with all this, I don't ever experience that. I don't have whatever it takes to like let the ghosts in or whatever. So I, I don't ever feel any of the supernatural stuff coincidentally my wife does like she'll yeah. walk into a room in one of these places and be like something happened here and then the tour guide will come in and tell them tell us what happened so i guess i lucked out that she has that and she kind of believes in this stuff and it's not as um there's not as much suspension of disbelief when she reads my stories as there might have been for right. someone else so yeah she's 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 the perfect partner in crime for me She's got a bit of the shining, it sounds a like. Bit. Some, a bit of something, yeah, which works for me. So. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've been to a lot of cool places. There's such there's such wild history out there that you never hear about. It's crazy. Um, let me circle back to uh, you mentioned the writer's workshop that you're, your, or writer's group that you're still involved with, with, with uh, some of your friends. Um, are those like other professional writers? They... It's it's a mix. There are some some professional that if if you're in the horror genre, you'd know Krista Carmen is in the group. She just wrote a book called The Daughters of Block Island that's getting a lot of really positive press right now. Um, but then there's other people in there that are, you know, just aspiring and, and, you know, they're getting a few short stories out there here and there and they're they're just waiting for their you know next big break, too. So it's kind of a, it's a good mix of people to get feedback from and it's it's it it's funny it actually a lot of the people in that group started back when i originally did that first trip to the stanley hotel which was back in like 2015 we went they had a writing retreat out there and you know again i was brand new haven wasn't even out yet i didn't really have any publishing credits i was waiting for haven to be published and I, Josh Mallerman was the guest of honor back right after Bird Box came out. He hadn't even caught on yet. Nobody knew who he was. Uh, Jack Ketchum was there before he passed. So I, I, if you're in the horror world, Jack Ketchum wrote um, The Girl Next Door and, and a, is probably his most famous one. Red is another one. He was like a superstar back in, in the 80s in the horror genre. And they were there giving, you know, giving writing workshops and things like that. Fast forward a couple of years when I start going to conventions like StokerCon and other horror theme conventions, I keep bumping, bumping into all these people that are like, yeah, I was at this thing at the Stanley. And I'm like, well, I was there, too. How did I know? <laughs> and I go back and start looking through all my pictures and I see these people in the background that I never even talked to at the event. So coincidentally, a lot of the people, I think they started that writing group at some point after that event. And I just didn't join it until maybe a couple of years ago. Um, because, again, I, I, writing groups are another for, for the aspiring writers out there. Writing groups are great, um, but you, you have to kind of find your people 
there's there's a lot of writing groups out there that I know from speaking to friends that you know people come and go and it just you just don't find that connection. Um, this this group is great. We give each other you know hard criticism but good criticism and um, yeah. I, so for any any aspiring folks out there, I would say. If you've been to a writing group and it wasn't for you, try another one. And if you haven't been to one, try one because it is really it's a good, safe place for you to start getting your work in front of people, again, who don't share your last name or, and are just going to tell you it's great no matter if it is or not. So, Right. And I mean, I would add to that that, um, you know, if you're if you're in the, the, the MA program or the MFA program now or even if you're you're you know studying uh in the ba um you know look to your peers and and make connections now uh with with people who might well be important to your writing life and your personal life for many years yet to come um, that, no, I, I yeah sorry paul to interrupt no please go ahead it's a, it's a great point i wanted to make that i forgot to mention is when i was taking these classes at snhu for my master's I did exactly that. We, a bunch of us started talking offline and um, we ended up writing and publishing an anthology with just, you know, majority of it was X, S, R, X or still SNHU students. And it, it's called Shades of Fear. I don't, it's probably still out there because it was kind of self-published on Amazon. Um, but so I, cool. had, I had some ties with the Jimmy Fund Clinic back in Boston. And when we published it, we made it all proceeds go to the Jimmy Fund Clinic. And I'm sure they still do if anybody's out there still buying it. I mean, it's probably so far down in the Amazon ranks. But it came out in like when I was still a student there in like 2015 or so. Uh, and it, it, well, it was a great experience collaborating with other students who had just been through kind of the same you know, the same classes and, and the same um, the same experience at SNHU. And I, I thought we put out a pretty cool anthology. So you have experience both through, through being published in a traditional manner, but also self-publishing yes. your, your work. So can you talk a little bit about like how how do you make the decision as to which route you're going to take for a particular book? So when, when I first started out, I I would have been happy to accept any offer from any publisher because that's just how, I, I don't know, how it is, I guess. I, I felt like anybody that wanted to publish me, like I should be happy about it and let them publish me. And it, it, it worked out. I worked with a lot of great publishers, in indie presses like Cemetery Dance, Bloodshot Books, um, Crystal Lake Publishing. There's there's been a bunch of them. I've never really stuck with one publisher. And when Haven came out, the weird thing about Haven coming out from Cemetery Dance was they did the limited edition hardcover, and that was limited to like 750 copies. And when that sold out, it was gone, and they had the ebook. And then I started going to conventions and getting like a dealer's table. And I'm like, I don't have copies of Haven to mm. sell because it was limited edition. So I self-published the the paperback copy. And that was my first venture into self-publishing. And I also went out and figured out how to have the audio book done. Um, and then 
so I went through all these different indie publishers and stuff, and I kind of evaluate, like, some of them are great. They do, they give you a great cover. They do editing for you. They do some marketing for you. Others aren't so great at any of that, and they're kind of like, you're just another horse in their stable, and maybe they're waiting for one of their horses to hit it big. And, and so they go by volume and cast a wide net, but don't really do the little things that help you as an author, like the editing and the, and the marketing specifically, the marketing is brutal out there. So a, recently a couple of my, my indie publishers actually went out of business, which is another common thing in indie publishing. Uh, it's just not, it, it's not a get rich quick scheme. And a lot of people might think it is. Um, so when, when those books were, um, you know, basically off the market, I took the rights back, which, which we can talk about contracts for hours if you want, but make sure you can get your rights back if you need to. Uh, I took my rights back and instead of trying to shop around for a new publisher, I self-published them myself. And I will say again to the, the students and aspiring writers out there, marketing is a big part of writing these days it's not like it was in the old days where you send your book out the publisher does everything and you know the next thing you know it's in all the bookstores and airports and everywhere it doesn't work like that anymore and what i found with self-publishing is i can do a lot more creative marketing and know immediately if if those promotions or or whatever they are advertisements are working or not, where if my book is with even an indie publisher, I don't have access to those like real time stats to say, okay, on November 11th, I ran this ad and on November 11th, I had a hundred new sales. It worked. Um, indie publishers don't really give you that. So what I found is self-publishing for me, now that I'm, I'm trying to figure out the marketing side of it more, is probably a direction I'm going to go. And I actually, I, I had a litter, a literary agent who I fired recently because unless you unless they're getting you into one of the big five mm -hmm. publishers, they're not going to do a lot for you. Or if they have the Hollywood connections, right. To get you a, you know, a series or, or a, an option or something like that. So I, I fired my agent and I'm going to probably do a lot of self-publishing in the future. I think that's a very enticing prospect for a lot of, um, you know, young writers and, and students. Um, and we try to prepare them in the MFA for the realities of self-publishing and marketing and all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, I think it's one thing to sort of learn about this stuff in an academic setting and, and have the resources at hand, but quite another to actually try to put it into practice with your own book, right? Because, you know, it, it matters whether you succeed or fail. Right. And um, what advice do you have, like in a practical manner for somebody who wants to kind of explore self-publishing? Is there a way they can do it without, you know, putting all their eggs in that basket and, and risking, you know, the, the success of a book that they might have labored on for many, many years? Um, so the, the, the two pieces of advice I always give for self-publishing, have your book professionally edited. Because if you get that thing out there and there are, you know, every, every book has a typo or two, right? And that's fine. But if you haven't had it edited, if you just had, you know, oh, my brother read it and he, he thought it was great, so I'm going to publish it. Well, that, that's not editing. Um, 
So I always have my work professionally edited. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but do you mean like uh, you'd hire like a developmental editor to work on it, a line editor, or do you mean like a copy editor? So I have a couple freelance editors I work with and they kind of touch on a little bit of everything. They'll yep. do some line editing, but if they start to see like a repeated issue like word echoes or something in your formatting or something like that, they'll just they'll just stop line editing for that specific thing and just say, you need to go find the rest of these. And I'm okay with that because I, you know, they, they're trying to make a living too, and they're not making a ton of money um, editing, but they, they've also been in the business long enough and in the horror specific genre long enough to understand, you know, character development and story development. And they do give you feedback at least on developmental ideas that might, make your story better and the second thing is hire a good cover artist don't go out there and photoshop and you know think you can do it yourself because you can't and the, the old thing about nobody judges a book by his cover is completely false everybody judges every book by its cover so you've got to have a good cover um but yeah i i think i think 10 years ago self-publishing had a, a big stigma stigma attached to it where it was like you're self-publishing because you can't get your book published anywhere else and that is so not true anymore it's just a better opportunity to not share the profits with a publisher who may or may not be doing anything to help you so right. i you know I've, I've kind of flipped 180 on that 10 years ago i would have said i'll never self-publish but it's it's changed so much and i've had you know i've had a couple bad experiences with indie publishers who just you know they're not doing their share of the work that they've committed to like i've written the book and i've done what i'm supposed to do and they're supposed to do their stuff and they're not so i think self-publishing self-publishing is a perfectly respectable and admirable way to go if you know especially if you don't if you don't want to go through all the drama of querying and it's a waiting game. I mean, a lot of these indie publishers have, they want you to only submit to their open call and then they want you to wait six months to hear if you're going to get in or not. And that six months as a writer is a long time to be waiting when you want to get your work out there. So, and I mean, even if, even if your work is accepted, it might be a year or two before oh, it's sees print. Absolutely. I've, I, I still have, um, the clearing was a three book deal with the publisher. So I have, I have the second book in with them now waiting for their edits and I owe them a third book, but I already know the second book isn't going to be out until 2025, even though I yeah. finished it early this year. And, wow. you know, so yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. Like Tom Petty said, the waiting is the hardest part. It really <laughs> is. Um, you know, as introverted as a lot of writers are, once that thing, once they type the end, they want that thing out there. They want people to read it. And it, it, it's hard. It really is hard. And when, when you have an avenue like self-publishing where you can kind of, I don't want to call it a shortcut, but take a different path and, and get, you know, get it out there on your time frame, it's viable. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big supporter of it now. It, it's come a long way since, since the early days of, of Kindle yeah. for sure. But I think that for some people, I mean, 
you know, you mentioned that a lot of writers are introverts. And I think there's, you know, there's that aspect of a writer's personality. And I, I agree with you. I think many writers are are introverts. Um, but then to be a to be a successful marketer, you have to really kind of adopt a different kind of persona, don't you? You do. It, and that's ex- and that's the perfect word for it, because I tell my wife all the time, like, I'll go to these conventions and you know they always they'll have it if i have a dealer room i'll have my table set up with you know all my books and i have to put on my salesman hat and it's very difficult for me to self-promote i'm not the kind of person that said hey my book is great go buy it like i almost feel weird talking about my own work so it's it's very much a persona i have to put on when i'm at these events to not be my normal self and try to be more, um, you know, self-promoting. And, and I tell my wife all the time, these events are all, I'm exhausted. It, it takes a lot out of me to, to wear that salesman hat and try to promote myself. And it's, but it is, it's in today's world, it's what you have to do. It's, it's, I hate to tell all the students this, but it's, it's, it's hard to be a writer and expect to make, you know, make a career out of it, I guess. I, I do it because I love it. If I had to rely on it to pay the bills, I couldn't do it. I think that's true for most writers. I mean, I, most I think writers it's a, and, and probably most artists in, in any format, yeah. whether it's music or, or, you know, art, painting, drawing, whatever. It, it's yeah, it's just it's tough. Yeah, I, I remember when I was when I was, you know, studying to be a writer and everything I had, I had a a kind of a mean instructor who uh, who told me, don't quit your day job. But uh, nowadays, I think like, well, I shouldn't quit my day job. I mean, it's good to have a day job. It is, right? <laughs> you know, it, I, I, back to the first story I told about my high school English English teacher, I never forgot about her and, and the comments she put on my paper. And a you know, a few years after Haven came out, I said, I really want to look her up and like, just find her and say, thank you. Even though I didn't act on her, her words when I should have, um, I, I never forgot those words in my, and when I finally tracked her down, she had already passed away at a, a, um, but when I, I posted it in, I grew up in Malden, Massachusetts. So there's a, you know, a Facebook group for Malden. And I, I, you know, I posted this long thing, basically the story I told you about how much she inspired me and, and tried to motivate me. And some of her family members reached out to me and said, thank you so much for posting this. Oh, and great. I sent them some books. It was really, so if you have that teacher out there or that person that's, that's inspiring you and trying to help you just say, thank you before it's too late. Yeah. Yeah, I was lucky enough when my first book came out, I, I tracked down my one of my high school English teachers and, yep. and she was still alive and I sent her a copy of it. I don't know what she made of it. I mean, she was very, very gratified, though, that I had taken the, the you know, the writing path. I, I, I wish I had the chance to thank her. So that that's great to hear. Yeah. Um, folks, we're coming to the end of our chat. So I just want to. Um, uh, ask for any more, any last questions. We have time, I think, for at least one more question. If anybody has anything they'd like to ask, just type it in the chat.
And so here's one. What is your favorite place you've gone to for inspiration? Oh, there's so many. Um, I've already <laughs> mentioned a couple, the Stanley and Waverly Hills. Um, Salem, Massachusetts, that you mentioned at the beginning, is just it's an endless supply of inspiration. Um, I've been to Alcatraz, which is another amazing place to spend time and, and you know, get get motivated. Um, I don't know. There, there's been so many places there. There's um, for those of you who don't know Arizona, there's a place in Arizona called Sedona, which is it, it's sort of a modern day kind of hippie community almost. But it's some of the most beautiful setting you'll ever see it's where all the red rock canyons are and things like that but they also have um seven vortexes and a, a vortex is allegedly and again it's maybe it's kind of a hippie thing maybe it's not um a vortex is a place where there's where there's a lot of positive energy supposed to be so you'll go to these hikes and the vortexes are somewhere along these hikes and you'll find you know, just people sitting there meditating and, you know, just kind of chilling out. And I have been to, I think, three or four of them while we were out there. And I I do believe there's something to them. I went to one of these vortexes and I just kind of sat down. This one had a little river running by it and we just sat down and I started having all these like memories of things that happened in my childhood that I hadn't really thought of since I was a kid. So I, I it was the closest thing, I think, to a supernatural experience I've ever had, just because it, it these memories just came like so vivid out of the blue. So I do believe there's something to these vortexes. So if you're into any of that stuff, go to Sedona, Arizona. It's <laughs> It's a really cool throwback little town. There's like crystal shops everywhere. And uh, it, it's just and it, it. But it's some of the most beautiful scenery you'll ever see in this country. Uh, and let me ask one last question. Um, let's see if I can find it here. Here it is. What was the most helpful critique or critical guidance that you received from anyone? Um. So I, I usually answer this question kind of in the opposite, and I will tell you the least helpful and try to make that into something helpful. So there, there's this kind of um, mantra out there, like writers write every day. You have to write every day if you're a writer. And that really put me off for a lot of years because I believed it and it you get to a point where if you don't write for two days, you're like, see, I'm not a writer. I can't do this. I'm not writing every day. I think the write every day advice that a lot of writers have probably already heard is the worst writing advice. You have to find your own process. You have to find what works for you. Um, I definitely would agree. Write as much as you can, but I, I, I'm a runner as well. So I, I kind of compare it to exercise. Like if, if you wanted to get in shape and somebody said, you have to go running every day, you're going to quickly realize that some days you just can't do it and you're not going to do it, but that doesn't mean you should quit and you should just keep going. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's probably the, the, the other piece of advice I will say, which has helped me a lot is whatever genre you're writing in, 
read everything, read outside the genre, read, you know, thrillers, mysteries, nonfiction, romance, whatever, because there's there's great writing out there in in other genres other than what you're interested in. And there's always little things you can pick up um, from those other genres, too. So I, I kind of read everything now, which is something I never used to do when I was younger. That's great advice. Um, I actually have a poster uh, of a framed poster of William Faulkner uh, on my wall that just says exactly that. Read, read everything. Yep. So uh, I'm always amazed, like when we do we do our bios, you know, the the first week of class and, you know, the class introduces themselves and do and do bios. And some of them, I, I don't read that much. And I'm like, OK. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm not going to say anything, but you should be reading if you want to be a writer. Sorry. It, yeah. It's it's part of the game. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I mean, that's another topic that we could talk a lot more we about. Could. I know. <laughs> um, but we've come to the end of our time. Uh, Tom, I want to thank you so much. Um, and Melissa, you've just like been incredible with like throwing all this stuff into the chat. It's amazing. Yeah, so thank, thank you. you. Thank you as well. And I wish you uh, all the best on your travels, Tom. And um, do you have anything you want to plug? Any any anything coming out now or in the near future or anything? The next thing coming out for me is going to be my my first real full length novel ghost story called Those Left Behind. Uh, It's with my editor now, and uh, I am going to go ahead and self-publish this one. I have a cover artist in mind for it that I've been talking to. Um, so that's probably going to be out February timeframe and it, and it will be self-published. Um, the other big news that nobody knows about. So I'm announcing it here for the first time is I'm editing an anthology that I, that I came up with the the concept for and it's, it's exactly the memory I told you of when I found Mm -hmm. that Salem's lot book on that little spinny rack. So I don't know if you're familiar with Grady Hendrix paperbacks from hell. Grady Hendrix is, is a horror writer and and he wrote this nonfiction book called paperbacks from hell. And it's a look back at all the kind of pulpy looking mass market paperbacks that were out in the seventies and eighties. And and he does like a whole almost theatrical presentation of it. He sings and everything. He's, he's a riot. Look him up if you ever can, but I wanted to publish an anthology that had that same feel to all the books I grew up reading. So I went out and invited um, as many of the, as many of my friends that are a big name that I can think yeah. of uh, to get out there. Um, and I, I went out, I managed to finagle a Stephen King contact through my contact. So I'm going to have a reprint of Stephen King's the raft. Oh, as, that's awesome. As part of this anthology. So that's going to be coming out probably next summer. And it's going to be all of today's stars in, in Johnny Compton, Richard Chismar, um, a whole host of others and i haven't announced this anywhere so all my friends are going to be yelling at me now if they hear this if <laughs> well, didn't invite them but um yeah fantastic. i'm super excited I've an anthology before i'm really excited for it so i Very think it's cool. gonna be fun well can you stay in touch with me and and uh, let me know when it when it's coming out and everything absolutely uh and on that note uh i am going to bid everyone a, a fond good night 
And we'll see you um, in December for the next Wireside Chat. Thank you again. Appreciate you having me. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.